0: Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me on AM Live. hope your weekend is going well. A lot to discuss. I'm sure by now you've seen the comments of uh, Secretary Antony Blinken on the explosion uh, on the Nord Stream 2 pipelines, the two pipelines that basically bypass Ukraine to take uh, Russian gas directly uh, from Russia to Germany and onto the rest of Europe. Now, Nord Stream 2 was already idle because Germany canceled the project under U.S. pressure uh, right before Russia invaded Ukraine. And Nord Stream 1 was idle because Russia shut it down last month in response to European sanctions on Russia. And so the sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 and one the explosions has a longer term impact because it means that if there were to be some sort of diplomatic off ramp in the ukraine war and the resumption of russian gas deliveries would have been presumably on the table as a part of a bargain this takes that aspect which is very huge you know the energy that powers most of europe off of the table and so this is how anthony blinken greeted the news he called it a tremendous strategic opportunity. And if you listen closely, he's, he thinks it's so tremendous that he repeats that twice more. So here is Anthony Blinken. It's a tremendous opportunity. Ultimately, ultimately um, this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away from
1: uh, Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. Uh, that's very significant, and that offers
0: tremendous um, strategic opportunity for, um, for the
2: years to come. But meanwhile, we're determined to do everything we possibly can uh, to make sure that the consequences of all of this are not borne by citizens in our countries, or for that matter, around the world.
0: So that's Anthony Blinken describing what he calls uh, a, strate- a tremendous strategic opportunity in the aftermath of the attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines, why is this a great opportunity for Anthony Blinken and the U.S. government? Well, they've made that very clear for a long time. Uh, Russian gas is more accessible to Europe, and it's also cheaper than, for example, American uh, liquefied natural gas. And so, thus, you know, having Russia provide such a huge amount of Europe's energy supply. It deepens integration between Russia and Europe, which makes it a lot harder for the U.S. to impose sanctions on Russia or even engage in proxy wars against Russia, because you're not going to want to sanction someone uh, who you're at war with and who, um, sorry, like like you're not going to want to sanction or go to war with a country that you rely on for your energy supply. And so that's why Blinken has been talking about uh, this being a great strategic opportunity, because now this per, this permanently puts to an end, or at least for a very long time until these pipelines can be repaired, the possibility of Russia supplying Europe with gas. And this has been made clear for a very long time. So this is not novel to the Biden administration. So I want to go back to, to some of the people over the years who have articulated this point of view of the importance of uh, cutting off Russia's energy relationship with the rest of Europe. And as people like Condoleezza Rice and many others have identified, Russia's economic strong point is energy. That's what accounts for the majority of its uh, export revenues. And so if you can sever that, then you can, then you can finally achieve your goal of weakening Russia because you can't really weaken Russia by conventional military means because Russia has nuclear weapons. So you need to find other ways to weaken Russia. And Russia being a, a, a large power on the world stage, uh, it's difficult to do that militarily. So economically, it was always seen as the way to do it. So this is, for example, a Rice speaking back in 2014 on German television. Uh,
3: the Russian economy
4: is vulnerable. of Russian exports are in oil, gas, and minerals. Uh, People say, well, the Europeans will run out of energy. Well, the Russians will run out of cash before the Europeans run out of energy. And I understand that it's uncomfortable uh, to have an effect on business ties in this way. Uh, But this is one of the few instruments that we have. Over the long run, you simply want to change the structure of energy dependence. You want to depend more on the North American energy platform, the tremendous bounty of oil and gas
0: that we're finding in North America. So that's Condi Rice in 2014. Articulating the goal here, which is, you know, take away a major source of Russian power, which is its export revenue in its economy, and also make Europe more dependent on the uh, American energy platform or or the North American energy platform. And uh, nobody, no president took up this cause more than Donald J. Trump. Uh, Trump came into office and he immediately, uh, or not immediately, but pretty quickly declared war on Nord Stream 2, threatened sanctions on Germany and the companies involved, and then finally carried it out. And, and he explained uh, in 2018 why he was so against Nord Stream 2. He, here he is speaking in a meeting with uh, NATO leaders uh, in Europe. Uh, Jan Stoltenberg is sitting across the table from him. This is from 2018. I it, uh, it's very sad.
1: So we're supposed to protect you against Russia, but they're paying billions of dollars to Russia. And I think that's very inappropriate. And the former chancellor of Germany is the head of the pipeline company that's supplying the gas. Uh, ultimately, Germany will have almost 70 percent of their country
0: controlled by Russia with natural gas. So you- so that's Trump complaining, and his complaint is basically this, like you're asking the U.S. to guarantee your security, uh, you know, living under the U.S.-led NATO umbrella. Uh, you're guaranteeing your security against Russia, supposedly, but you're giving Russia billions of dollars uh, to buy its gas. And so you're deeply integrating yourself with Russia while asking us to pit, to put the bill for protecting you from Russia. So he's pointing out a contradiction there, at least one that, that he perceives, and he executed that, uh, his complaint, by imposing sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which actually halted its construction for a while. Now, when Biden came into office, now, and of course, I should say this was one of many policies that, of course, were completely ignored by the U.S. media and political class because we were supposed to, during the same period, while Trump was trying to kill the Nord Stream 2 and also killing vital nu- uh, nuclear uh, arms control packs with Russia, we are supposed to believe that Trump was actually Vladimir Putin's puppet. And was being compromised by Putin with uh, sexual blackmail, and so this was inconvenient to the narrative when Trump was, for example, going out of his way to kill one of Russia's most important energy projects. So that's why we didn't hear much about it, except for at the margins. So fast forward to Biden, and Biden comes into office, and now he faces this problem where you know this is causing Trump's policy is causing serious um, uh, conflict with Germany, and Biden's whole thing was about repairing our uh, our relationship with our NATO allies. Well, one of the biggest fault lines was this Trump effort to kill the Nord Stream 2. So Biden agrees initially to waive U.S. sanctions, waive Trump sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline while still saying that he opposes it. He, unlike Trump, waives those sanctions, which allows the pipeline to be completed. But then the Biden administration comes up with another way to stop the Nord Stream 2. And they do this as the Ukraine crisis is building. And that is they come up with this line that if Russia invades Ukraine, then they will force Germany to kill Nord Stream 2. Uh, This is Victoria Nuland speaking about this in January of 2002. Victoria Nuland is a top State Department official. She was the one who was caught on tape uh, back in 2014, plotting on who the next Ukrainian leadership will be after the overthrow of, of Viktor Yanukovych. And the person Nuland picked, Yatsenyuk, indeed became the new leader of Ukraine. So this is her In January of 2022.
4: Um, With regard to Nord Stream 2, uh,
5: we continue to have uh, very strong and clear conversations uh, with our German allies, and I want to be clear with you today. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2
6: will not move
0: forward. So one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. And during this time, the U.S. is putting heavy pressure on Germany to agree, to go along. Uh, and uh, there's these series of meetings between U.S. and German officials. And there's even one in early February between Biden and the German Chancellor Schultz, where Schultz is standing by Biden's side, where Schultz is still refusing to fully sign on. Now, he's indicating that he, he probably would cancel Nord Stream 2 if Russia invades, but he's not willing to say it out loud. He won't do it. So Biden says at a news conference next to uh, next to Schultz says that if Russia invades, we will be able to stop the pipeline. And a reporter asks him, "Well, how can you stop the pipeline if it's under uh, Germany's control?" And let's listen to Biden's answer. Let's listen to actually to this whole uh, series of comments here. Let me answer this first question first. If Germany, if uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the. Uh, the, the border of Ukraine. Uh, again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We we will bring an end to it. it. But, do,
7: but how will you how will you do that exactly? Since the project and control of the project is within
0: Germany's control. We will. Uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. So that's Biden uh, promising to be able to kill Nord Stream Two, no matter what Germany says. And so, fast forward to now, somebody has sabotaged Nord Stream Two, and you know U.S. media—it it feels like basically U.S. officials are barely trying to even blame Russia. Yes, they've—they're—they're they're feeding that to their usual media stenographers, but no one's really trying to say it out loud. If you listen to Biden's comments, he offered a very tepid response. Like, you'd think if you really believe that Russia was behind. The sabotage of its own pipeline, that he would be more forceful about it. And this is a huge environmental disaster. It's a major act of of, uh, of sabotage. And Biden was very subdued and didn't actually even issue a direct denial when he spoke about this on Friday. He just said that whatever Putin is saying is, is misinformation. And Putin, of course, has blamed the U.S. and its allies for this. So in terms of who had the motive to sabotage the pipeline, well, it's pretty clear just from U.S. statements alone, public statements, both before and after the pipeline sabotage, that the U.S. had the motive. As for Russia's possible motive, um, look, the whole uh, grievance that the U.S. had about Nord Stream 2 uh, for a long time was that Nord Stream 2 gives Russia leverage over European politics, right? That's what they constantly argued for years and years and years. So that obviously begs the question, if indeed Nord Stream 2 and Nord Stream 1 give Russia leverage over Europe, why would Russia go ahead and blow up its leverage? I mean, that just doesn't happen. And so the idea that this was Russia, I think, can be dismissed uh, on its face. Uh, Of course, anything is possible, I suppose. And we will see whatever uh, evidence emerges from the international investigations that happen. But I think to me, it's pretty clear to me that the primary suspects right now are those who... We're trying to kill the Nord Stream 2 for a long time. And it's not just the U.S. And it's possible, of course, that this was not directly carried about the U.S. Uh, it could have been carried out by an, a junior partner like Poland or, or the U.K. But to me, you know, the prime suspects here are those who were encouraging the killing of the Nord Stream 2 and stood to benefit from it. Which also begs the question, well, who loses from this? Well, obviously Russia loses from this, but who else loses? Well, I think it's the rest of Europe because... Europe is now facing a cold winter as forecasts are calling for, uh, European industries were already shuddering, jobs were already being lost. Energy bills are, are already skyrocketing. And recently in Germany, you had protests in the thousands to end the sanctions on the North stream too, because people were recognizing what is coming ahead for them in, a, in this winter. It's gonna be a very cold winter and a very painful one. And, uh, they are primarily those who will suffer as a result of this, whoever was responsible. And it speaks to, I think, the underlying mentality behind this proxy war, that everybody is expendable, not just Ukrainians, uh, not just Russians. And I'm saying this, by the way, from the point of view of both belligerents. You know, To Russia, to Putin, obviously, his own soldiers are expendable, too. He's sending off people to die in a war, uh, and he's knowingly causing casualties on the other side. And from the U.S. point of view, too, which, to me, the policy has been to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian, as Lindsey Graham put it, you know, Ukraine, if the U.S. supports it, will fight to the last person. So that's the articulated U.S. policy from those behind it. Uh, They viewed everybody from Ukraine, uh, from Ukrainians to Russians, to the rest of the world as expendable. And that's why they've been willing to tolerate higher food prices, higher hunger as a result. And now, especially now with the sabotage of the Nord Stream 2, Higher energy prices, and they're even seeing now an increase increased bellicosity around nuclear talk, you know both Putin and the u s now have been talking about using nuclear weapons, and at a time like this, you'd think there would be uh, all the more of an incentive to pursue diplomacy, but that's just not that's not in the cards right now, and instead you know the u s seems to have settled on a strategy of tolerating more death inside Ukraine and tolerating more suffering on the rest of Europe and around the world. And that is where we're headed, I think, to a very, very awful uh, winter. Okay, so that is my rant, and I will take callers if there are some. And um, let me say also that we just had this, uh, you know, on Friday, Putin signing this order to annex more Ukrainian territory after votes inside uh, these occupied Ukrainian regions. And um, I had thought that possibly Russia would delay formally annexing these territories as a bargaining chip. You know, I wrote an article about this just last week saying that this, that Putin didn't have to immediately re- annex these territories despite their vote for them. He could actually use that that those votes as a bargaining chip in some sort of settlement with Ukraine and the U.S. But obviously that proved to be completely... Incorrect, because Putin immediately went ahead. And so that's off the table. And I just wonder now, so then what will peace look like? And it just sounds like to me like both sides now are dead set on counting on the other side to lose enough people until they surrender. That to me is the looks like the end game here. Okay, let's take our call. Our first caller, Radical.
2: Yes. Uh, Hi, love your work. Uh, Keep doing what you're doing. Uh just wanted to ask you, uh, given the nature, the mentality of people who specialize in conflict and warfare, um, do you think that Russia may use some means to get even uh, in, in terms of um, we have pipelines in many places in this country, as well as um fracking installations and so forth uh that could be vulnerable uh to anything from you know uh, sabot- you know direct sabotage like what may have happened uh nord stream or um cyber attacks what's your uh, opinion on that thanks
0: yeah i think uh that is quite likely uh, i mean i mean look how vulnerable lng shipments are i mean like shipping Liquefied natural gas from the U.S. across the Atlantic to Europe—that's very vulnerable to sabotage. I mean, they're right there out open in the sea. Not difficult for Russia, and its capabilities, to uh, mess with those shipments and many others. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think um, I think it's totally fair to expect a retaliation. Absolutely. And then you have to wonder. I mean, so how how far up does this escalation ladder go? You know, does this set off a new a new pattern of of retaliation back and forth when it comes to not just conventionally on the battlefield in, in Ukraine, but now disrupting other people's infrastructure and, and energy supplies. I think that's totally fair—a totally fair thing to worry about. Okay,
1: Cr. Hey, Aaron, how's it going? Hi there. I had a question for you. Uh, how does it feel to be the the second coolest person in the family now that your dad's been on Joe Rogan? that's not not my real question (laughs) well I
0: you know I I listened to that interview that that my dad Gabor uh, Maté did with Joe Rogan it was great Uh, and for those who don't know uh, my dad is a a physician and an author and has a new book called The Myth of Normal and he did a great interview on Joe Rogan which I thought was um, it really captured you know his message and and his work and um, the book's doing great it's actually this week it's the second week on the New York Times Bestseller list, which the first time the first time my dad's made the, the bestseller list it's for for two weeks in a row now. It's number it was number five last week and number six this week. So it's an exciting time for him. And Joe Rogan was you know obviously a big help I think in in reaching a new audience.
1: Yeah, no, that that, that was really cool. It was really cool to see. No, but my my actual question was is uh, um, I get I get this I don't know you know what I mean just being like you know cynic growing up during the '90s and stuff like that. I get this sense that both sides right now, you know, if, if we're just to just say Russia and the United States, right? Both sides of this kind of this uh, nuclear thing. I get the sense that like both of them kind of believe the other one isn't really going to actually do it. You know what I mean? Like it's all bluster. And, and I think, cause we're all sitting back going, dude, why are, why are you guys flirting with just even the possibility of a nuclear war breaking out? Most, you know, same level-headed people are sitting back going, this is fucking nuts. And to me, the only thing that makes any possible sense is that, you know, the decision makers on both sides truly believe the other one won't do. Like, it's so, you know, so abhorrent and so crazy of a last option that even though, you know, you say Putin's crazy ad nauseum in the the newspaper, I, I just, I get the sense. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. Does that make any sense to you that these people believe that they can flirt with this thing because they then in their hearts believe that, that either one of them will actually do it?
0: Absolutely. I, I That's exactly how I see it. I think they're convinced that the other will not take that step. They both have pretty similar nuclear doctrine, but not exactly. Uh, Russia's is no first use unless, uh, of course, its attacked with a nuclear weapon or if its territorial integrity is threatened. And the U.S., um, says it will consider nuclear weapons uh, only in extreme circumstances uh, if its interests are threatened it, or if the interests of its allies and partners are threatened. So the U.S. doctrine actually has a little bit more uh, leeway in terms of the use of weapons. But I do think that both sides are calculating that n- no one's going to see um, it worth it to use nuclear weapons. And it's maybe they're right, you know, and <laughs> let's hope they're right. But that's the problem here. It's like if they're playing a sick experiment. I mean, why even made a possibility. I mean in at this at this in 2022 after all the horrors of the last century why even flirt with the possibility? That's the insanity here. And uh, it doesn't help that the arms control treaties that limited the stockpiles of both countries have been weakened and that, and I, on that, you know, I blame Trump and the people around Trump. I mean, they killed the INF treaty which had previously eliminated a whole class of nuclear weapons. Between the U.S. and Russia, now that's gone. And also gone is the Open Skies Treaty, which allowed both countries to fly surveillance flights over the other to ensure that they're complying with their obligations. Um, and uh, so it's made this. So like in that situation where you have less safeguards, less cooperation, and direct conflict—not just in Ukraine, also but in Syria too, because it's actually two battlefields where the U.S. and Russia are on directly opposing sides, Ukraine and also in Syria, you just, it's, we're constantly flirting with that possibility. And it's, I think it's crazy that we're even in that situation.
1: It, it, yeah. To me, the the, 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 thing that makes it so like, I, I'm like, I, I'm grasping here going like, oh, okay, it's gotta be, they're just playing a sick game here because, you know, we know that, uh, uh, um, uh, fucking, uh, what's his, what was Kennedy's counterpart at the time? And I, I'm blanking. Christian. Yeah, yeah, Christian. During the, the, the they, they, you know, they, they were talking, you know, and their yep. people were talking. You know what I mean? There was communication that, was, even though we were supposedly brought to the brink, as we're all kind of taught now, you know, retrospectively, at least there was some fucking communication going on. Now we're in this situation where we, they're publicly admitting that they're not fucking talking to each other. You know what I mean? You, you, you know, uh, <laughs> so to me, I, 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 that part of kind of the thing that kind of gives me a little bit pause and kind of go, wait a minute. You know, are, have, have has, has the, the threat of nuclear war become such a distant memory that these people actually really are kind of getting a little fucking senile, a little loopy, and forgetting like what the real stakes are here? You know what I mean? Because there's also that other side of it. We're not talking. A lot of time has passed. You know what I mean? A lot of people, uh, uh, uh memory hole shit so well these days now yep. that, that yep. I, I have had this fear that that, that threat, you know what I mean? Uh, the, the mutually assured destruction that, that we're, we're, all so worried about, you know, uh, um, just 30 years ago or so. Uh, it, it just seems like that's not even, I don't even hear that term brought up anymore. So, I mean, uh, uh our, if, okay, so I'll put it to you this way. If we were to see something pop off, who do you think would be most likely to be the one to pull the first trigger?
0: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know who, um, I don't know, because that depends on so many different things. And I I should have mentioned, too, also, you know, um, with uh, mutually assured destruction, I believe also that that safeguard has been weakened by the U.S. under Bush killing the anti-ballistic missile treaty uh, because that allowed the U.S. to build up these sites, the missile sites in Poland and Romania that I think, if I have it correct, I think that undermines Russia's ability to uh, to, to, to take part in its... uh, in, in its role in mutually assured destruction, regardless that that gave the U.S. a capability that is that that has increased the threats today, and um, it just makes everything that much more perilous. The fact that you have these U.S. anti-ballistic missile sites in Poland and Romania, and and they're officially they're supposed to be to pr- to protect Europe from Iranian missiles, which is a joke. That was always a a fake uh, pretext. The obvious aim was to, you know, build up offensive capability on Russia's borders. And so in terms of who would pull the trigger first, I I mean, I I can't even speculate that because it comes down to, I don't know. I I don't know how crazy Putin is. Is he a madman? Is Biden, I mean, and also with Biden, does he, is he all there? I don't, it's hard to conclude that. And are the people around him rational? Um, It's hard to trust them too. So Uh, It just speaks to the importance of finding some kind of off ramp. And as you say, the fact that they're not talking unlike Khrushchev and Kennedy is uh, it's criminal. It's crazy. It's really crazy. Thank you. Thank you CR for the call. Thank you for the call. All right, Jenny.
4: What do you think about Trump offering broker a deal?
0: (laughs) Well, look, uh, I think uh, any diplomacy would be good, but again, it 's hard for me to take Trump seriously on this because I seriously fault him for a lot of this now, not entirely, and you know at the same time, you could argue if he was still in office that this wouldn't have happened There's actually a strong case for that, but in terms of his policies while he was in office, what did he do? He killed he or he as he he tried to kill the Nord Stream two uh, he delayed its construction with his, with his sanctions and he did everything he could to rally the u s and the rest of the world against it he also tore up all these nuclear treaties that I spoke about before, the INF Treaty, the Open Skies Treaty. Um, he also sent off weapons to Ukraine that Obama would not send and increased U.S. support for the Ukrainian military fighting Russian-backed rebels uh, in the Donbass and, as far as I know, didn't put any pressure at all on the Ukrainian government to make peace, to implement the Minsk Accord. Um, you know, his Aaron, only pre- you're, yeah.
4: you're really making the case that Trump was not Putin's puppet
0: <laughs> yes, I do. Yes. I've been making that case for six years now. And uh, it's, well, really it's, more, called... it's 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 moments like this, by the way, that underscore why I was making that case is because while while you know the U.S. media was calling Trump Putin's puppet, he was implementing policies that have helped lead us to a moment like this.
4: Yeah, I really called to follow up. I called you and Katie last week and told you about this case in Utah that's been bubbling up in the last week. There has been an arrest. I put a link in the chat about who they arrested. And this case has deep ties to Ukraine. And so it hasn't quite hit the national press yet, except that little propagandist at NBC, Brandy Zadrozny, wrote an article two weeks ago debunking the whole thing, saying it's, there's nothing there, nothing to see, called it a satanic panic, and used all sorts of, you know, just propagandistic tropes to kind of dismiss the whole thing. And then here's this big arrest of the number one suspect in the whole thing. And the police in Utah have said this is the first Of more to come, and I think and and,
0: and what is this case about?
4: There is a prosecutor named David Levitt who has deep ties to Ukraine's. He called himself the best friend of Ukraine's president from 2014 until this new president. He lived in Kiev. They were close personal friends, and so deep ties to Ukraine and that presidency. There's some people who think he's a spook. They say this guy, you know, just reeks of the CIA. I don't know about that. All I know. Is that he has been outed as being a demon, just demonic in his behavior. And deep ties to this guy who was just arrested in Utah. Like I said, the case hasn't quite hit the national media yet, but it's really one to watch because of the ties to the Ukraine. And there's a lot of questions about what was going on in the biolabs in Ukraine being funded by the US. What was happening? What are they trying to cover up? And so I just, I'm watching this whole thing unfold going, Where the heck are we going? But, you know, Blinken today coming out and saying what he said, I'm glad they're just being so open about it. You know, this is an opportunity to make make something of ourselves. And I think there's so many people in government who they just love when we have these emergencies and the wars, because then they can refocus away from all their failures around the economy and, and focus everybody's attention on something else. And it's just smoke and mirrors. So I, I'm anxious to see how it all unfolds, but I'm just praying we don't have a, a nuke go off. You know that would just yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I I can only imagine if I were a you know European facing uh, job losses with industries collapsing because they can't power their industries without Russian gas, or if I was facing a massive energy bill how I would respond to Blinken calling all this a huge, a, a tremendous strategic opportunity. And it's so yes. tremendous. That he, he, he used the word tremendous opportunity t- uh, twice more. That's how enthusiastic yeah. he is about this. No, uh, he's gloating, uh, gloating. Yeah. Gloating. yeah. No. And he's no, a things, diplomat. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, imagine if Trump had said something like that. I think the right. US media would have, would have been all over him for that probably, or, or, they, would have just, or, or they would have just ignored it uh, because it didn't go along with the narrative. Thank you, Jenny.
4: Thank you.
0: Okay, Jason. The UP, there you go. Okay,
8: sorry, I had to enable my camera no for some reason. Always calling. Hey, um, I hope you're doing well. Um, I just wanted to maybe ask your opinion. Um, you know, after the USSR collapsed, and I was a young kid but i thought like oh cool we don't need nato anymore we can start spending money on domestic programs and everything and you know um 9-11 came around and after 9-11 you know we were working a lot with russia um fighting uh terrorists together and i remember maybe some people forget there was russian troops in the u.s at one point doing security at the super bowl and. you know, during Obama, I really thought we could strengthen our partnership, and instead it just seems like you know we went the opposite direction and just continued to antagonize Russia. I just wonder, uh, maybe you have more insight on like how we went from Russian troops doing security to the Super Bowl to where we are now.
0: You know, it reminds me of after the Mueller report um, and Mueller's disastrous testimony. I thought, great, we can finally stop talking about Russia because this thing is obviously over. There's no way they can keep it going. Well, I was wrong about that. And uh, the reason is, is basically Russia is a, you know, rival power, um, not really economically, but militarily, and, and because it has nukes. And the U.S. will always seek to take out any state that can be a deterrent to its hegemony. And Russia, because of its nuclear weapons and its... And it's oil and gas, too, I should say. Uh, Russia can act as that deterrent in some areas, not everywhere, but in some areas. And so it's been a long-time goal of U.S. planners to destroy Russia. Um, Bob Gates talks about it in his memoir, or I think it was Bob Gates. Someone talks about Dick Cheney saying that we have to basically uh, take apart um, Russia so that there can never be a power there like there was one in the Soviet Union. I'm paraphrasing. It was something like that. And so that's been the strategic goal is to basically weaken Russia. And as we're seeing now with Nord Stream 2 and the efforts against it, um, there's been a realization that militarily uh, there's not that, that militarily it can't be done just because of Russia's military power. So you, so you can bleed Russia in Syria and you can bleed Russia and Ukraine, but it's not gonna to lead to regime change. And so the regime change will come via economic sanctions and uh, you know stopping energy projects like Nord Stream 2. And the, but they've learned though, over the course of the Ukraine proxy war so far, that even economic sanctions have their limits because so far Russia has been able to withstand them relatively well, or at least a lot better than was expected. So that's why now I think you're onto this new phase of, try, of destroying <laughs> outright terrorism against uh, energy pipelines And that also entails, you know, sacrificing European lives, too, because uh, that's who also will pay a price of this. So I think that's that's why Russia, we've not been able to uh, put the Cold War behind us is because it's not just about, you know, lingering Cold War resentment and biases. It's about trying to take out any deterrent. And Russia is a major deterrent. So therefore, it has to be weakened.
8: Okay. yeah, I guess maybe I'm just naive or. Have a Rodney King sentiment of "Can't we all just get along?" Yeah, and uh, that's uh, apparently that's that's not how the U.S. government does things, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. right. Well, (laughs) thank you, Aaron. And um, I uh, look forward to your book coming out soon. I I guess you didn't want to step on your uh, family members' toes (laughs) with your release.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) yeah. No, I just need to. uh, It's writing a book is a very long process, and uh, but but I'm getting there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know
2: well, you've been yeah, busy here. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks. Thank thanks. Okay. Hello? Hi oh. there. Um. Shit, I
9: forgot what I was going to say. I was busy typing in the chat something completely different.
2: What are we talking well, about? Anthony Blinken, the Nord Stream
9: pipeline bombing offers tremendous strategic opportunity for the years to come. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, we did it. We bombed that pipeline for sure. Sabotage,
0: right? I mean, look, uh, there are are there are people benefits. Yeah, there are people out there who who made the case, like the like the circumstantial evidence why they think it was the U.S. and Poland and others. um, there's a post on the uh, blog Moon of Alabama that makes the case, you know, and they go into like U.S. naval exercises in that area and all this stuff. And I, you know, I, I don't see the point for me of getting into that because I just don't have the capability to judge it. I will say, though, if you look at the map of where the pipeline was sabotaged, it's interesting. You'd think if it was Russia that it would have been done close to Russian waters, but it's not. It's way more. It, it's, it's off the waters of Denmark. Right. That's where it was done. So. If Russia wanted to bomb the pipeline, why wouldn't they just do it, you know, off their waters? It's a lot easier for them, presumably, to get to. I, mean, I don't know. I'm not like a, a naval uh, strategist, but that seems to make sense. That if, if Russia was behind it, they'd at least want to do it close to their waters. But that's not where it was done. So, yeah. Well, why would I mean, they bomb just, their
10: own pipeline, though? Well,
0: exactly. There's that too. I mean, that's that. That's the basic question. But I'm just going even Denmark putting that aside. It. <laughs>
10: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
9: And he's looking at everybody like, y'all are
0: sus. (laughs) Yep. 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 All right. Thank you for the
2: call. Which one of you did that?
0: (laughs) Okay. Rena.
11: Hey, Aaron. uh, Good to speak to you. Uh, You may not recall that you have anointed me, your Nebraska ambassador. So I haven't talked to you in a little while. And I just wanted to call call back in from Nebraska. I live in the part of the state that has a lot of ICBM silos. And for Mm. those of you who are young, that stands for (laughs) Incidental Ballistic Missile Silos. And uh, they're still active. Those are are our nukes. And they're pointed at uh, the bad people, you know, over the North Pole, catch my drift Um, yes (laughs) I I found out from a friend a while back and I had never heard this phrase before but this area this area of uh, of the country is what's known as the sponge and apparently at some point some idiot here uh, volunteered all of us who live here and of course we aren't there aren't very many of us who live here to be the sponge Meaning that we're going to be the first place that gets nuked when WW3 breaks out. So, uh, t- in order to take out all those silos that contain ICBMs, um, yeah, they're go- they're going to take those out first. Personally, I'm really hoping they take out Washington DC first if if the strike happens. But at-, at least we know we'll go quick. We'll go quickly. So i I wish all of you the best with <laughs> nuclear winter because we're going to be vaporized in my part of the world, and that's not a very that's not a very cheerful call. Um, so shame on me for that. Um, on a lighter note, uh, because I haven't heard nearly enough people telling you this, uh, I want to compliment you again. I have heard a few compliments, but I want to compliment you again for your impeccable uh performance with the uh mid-20 something McCarthyites uh that that will live in uh in a long litany of very exceptional Aaron Maté uh the only word that comes to me is exsanguinations of people who really, really fail to perform. Jim Risen Leaves to Mind, uh, that Guardian reporter, Luke Harding, that one. And then the last one, the one you had the phone call with, uh, all of them, absolutely impeccable. And you do it without ever breaking a sweat. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, appreciate all your work. Uh, it, you'll you'll probably talk to katie before i get a chance again uh tell her kudos for standing up on her hind legs too that whole that whole that whole issue is a red line for me if if i could go from uh watching the movie exodus uh back in the day and thinking that it was the gospel and uh doing doing one a hundred and eighty degree turnaround from that, then uh I don't know what anybody else's excuse is. So mm. so anyway, good on you both and uh, thanks for uh, thanks for doing all you do.
0: Well thank you. Thanks for all those kind words. And yeah, and um what's being referred to there is Katie Halper, my co host on useful idiots. She uh recently was fired from the hill. They had the show Rising because she did a monologue critical of Israel defending Rashida Tlaib, and uh, they refused to air it, and that led to a little bit of a conflict. And so anyway, she was let go, and uh, now it's become sort of a free speech issue, and she put out her her monologue that they refused to air. And it's sad. It's sad for many reasons. I mean, it's too bad that a outlet that I think actually did a really good job of distinguishing itself from other outlets um, in terms of its coverage of important issues like the proxy war in Ukraine has this policy. They apparently have a policy of not airing editorials about Israel, which to me is just like, it's very, I don't know. I don't know how you can have a policy like that as a news organization, but they did. They do. And it's too bad because, you know, um, they, they actually do a lot of great work and they allow on voices that are not allowed on elsewhere. So it's too bad that on this issue, but Israel, they were so constrained. And I think, uh, you know, they had something actually special in featuring voices that are banned elsewhere. On both the left and the right, they were sort of, you know, finding areas of common ground. And even with, when there wasn't common ground, at least of like debate and actual discussion. And I think when you cancel certain topics that, that, that undermines that. And so Katie uh, is unfortunately no longer there, but I will pass on your regards. Okay. Uh, Ian. Hey Aaron, how's it going? Good.
9: I'm going to try to be a little more concise than my normal cuz it looks like there might be someone slightly more interesting than me uh, in the queue. Um, but I missed the first uh, 3 minutes of the session, so maybe you uh, touched on this but uh so I watched the uh UN Security Council meeting. I believe it was uh yesterday or the day before and um US representative like it wasn't like Blinken. Um but that was also kind of a, a pretty interesting clue, at least, you know, based on interpretation. So, after, like, you know, everybody else in the circle, like all the other Security Council members, and they all, except for Britain, you know, because they're kind of belligerent and stuff, but they all were kind of expressing, like, concern. But when it came to the U.S. representative, who was kind of like, you know, Mike Pompeo with a stubble beard, I've never actually seen this dude before. Um, and like, first he just says that, you know, Russia, you know, insinuating that we might've had something to do with it is conspiracy theory. And then the rest of his, his time was just talking about how awful Russia is, like all the bad things Russia is doing, but not proof here, but from an interpretive perspective. So like, you know, rhetorically it's a lot of deflection, bloviation, but I was kind of looking at the body language. And, like, again, you couldn't really convict someone in a court of law, but the body language kind of looked like, yeah, and what are you going to do about it? Like, <laughs> it just like this contempt and arrogance. And right. I was just like, sometimes I've seen little glimpses of that, like, from U.S. officials over the years. And this may be in my head, but I felt kind of like this thread, like, that I could see, like, oh... I, I kind of see like what's going on here, like the, what whatever culture there, but I was pretty convinced of guilt just, but this was even before Blinken um, just by seeing that. And it's the whole thing. It's pretty shocking. And I, I don't know. It's a weird thing. Like I, maybe sometimes people might even irrationally be putting their hopes in, in like Russia and China Because on the surface of it, well, I mean, not on the surface of it, below the surface, it seems like we are relying on them to be the level heads, like the American perspective, like the UK perspective is like Manichean, it's like good versus evil, where there aren't like, you know, if you as like, even as like, you know, hostile or belligerent as things that Putin might say, he will address the conflict as a conflict with multiple interests and sides. Like, and yeah. we, we won't even acknowledge two sides. But, but, but no, the no, no. Is, that, is that it's now we're placing like the world's safety and fu- future in Putin's hands because like we just want to get off the chain and go crazy. Uh,
0: yeah, look, it's uh, US policy, I think, you know, and Ukraine is the best example of it. It's been so reckless. It's just to try to turn a country that has millions of ethnic Russians, that used to be a part of Russia, that has territory that, you know, Crimea, where you have, um, you know, uh, massive pub- uh, public support for joining Russia. I mean, like, that's why the annexation that Russia pulled off there was was bloodless. I mean, I think it's different in the territories that Russia has just annexed. I think more people there probably oppose annexation than the votes reflect. But in in Crimea, for example, I I think it was pretty uh, clear. And but yet the U.S. policy has been to try to turn Ukraine into one camp instead of uh, allowing Ukraine to be neutral. And uh, it's been typically reckless, and it's led to the situation we're in now. And by the way, I, I think the person you're you're referencing, the de- it, was it the deputy U.S. ambassador to the U.N.?
9: I think he might have been.
0: Yeah, yeah. So his name is Richard Mills, and I've dealt with him before because he spoke for the U.S. at uh, Security Council meetings where I've been uh, a uh, briefer uh, on Syria, on the issue of Syrian chemical weapons. And he has a tough job because, you know, when I'm there, I'm there to talk about the— Overwhelming evidence of a cover-up at the OPCW, which suppressed evidence that Syria was not guilty of a chemical attack in Duma, and that evidence that evidence that was suppressed undermined the U.S. pretext for bombing Syria in April 2018. And he has a tough job because you know I think the case is pretty rock solid that there was a cover-up. And so he, in his comment on that, just completely ignored all the points that I made, that all the basic points about the OPCW scandal. And talked about you know all this being as as you saying are saying he said about Ukraine, uh, Nord Stream 2, all these things being conspiracy theories and all that stuff. That, I mean, that's all he can say is all this is just a conspiracy theory, no matter how well it's 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 documented. So he has a tough job. It's not easy being a being a diplomat uh, <laughs> and having to good. having to defend the the indefensible. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I try not. I mean, there's only so much though. Unfortunately, we can draw from body language. It's uh, you know, it's not admissible in a court of law, or really in the court of public opinion, but it is it is interesting to observe.
9: Yeah, definitely. Well, hey, thanks for uh, all the stuff you're doing. Everybody says that, but uh, I re- appreciate it.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, Tara.
12: Hi, it took me to another window, so it threw me off. Hi, Aaron, this is Tara Reed. How are you?
0: Good. 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 Thanks.
12: And I just want to say that I really appreciate your work. I look to it a lot and I also look to other journalists, but the field is getting narrower and narrower, narrower because of the censorship. Um, and it's like only one narrative is being allowed. So I had actually a two part question. Um, and by the way, I wanted to, um, also with the other callers, give you, um, support and acknowledgement of Katie Helper being fired and censored and how wrong that is. Um, you know, when it's obvious uh, the the violence that is being um, perpetrated on the Palestinian people and, you know, the recent assassination of the journalist Shireen um, by Israeli forces, I, it was really uh, brave of Katie to speak out and, you know, thank you for, as a colleague, supporting her, Um, going through what she had to go through, being fired um, from the Hill and whatnot. And that's the Hill's Lost. And uh, as you know, Katie's quite brave. She covered uh, my story, even though many people did not want it brought forth during um, the election. Um, But she bravely did it. So my question was two parts about the pipeline. Has anyone, I was doing some research and doing some things, and I know we've been talking about the responsibility of the sabotage, and it's kind of obvious by circumstantial evidence that there was American involvement. I mean, people are saying it without saying it in some cases, but has anyone done anything about the environmental impact? Because I've been unable to really find any substantive reporting about the environmental impact of that that's going on. And second, um, regarding censorship. Um, it's gotten so bad. Um, and you're seeing journalists being individually sanctioned, um, if they give a different view of Ukraine or like, for instance, the sabotage of the pipeline. Now that's being called, um, Russian propaganda to say that anyone else is responsible. Um, what is your view about the direction the censorship is going? We're coming up on the Assange case. He's being extradited here. Um, you know, into the United States? And what are your, some of your thoughts on those kind of two two subjects? And thank you.
0: So on the uh, methane emission, yeah, I, from what I read, it was one of the largest methane emissions ever. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I haven't heard much beyond that. And I, I'm surprised we haven't seen much inv- outrage from environmentalists. I mean, part of the problem is, that, look, I, I don't, I, I didn't follow this too closely, but Early on in the proxy war, like early on in in, in this phase, of the proxy war because the proxy war has been going on for eight years. But early on in this phase, after Russia invaded, I remember seeing a bunch of environmentalists try to like the, try to capitalize on the moment of like anti Russia sentiment by saying this is a great moment to like transition away from fossil fuels, as if mm-hmm. as if anybody would actually be swayed by that in in policymaking circles that oh because like Putin uses fossil fuels we're gonna become renewable users all of a sudden. But anyway, mm-hmm. that's the kind of line that they took. And in the process, whether they intended to or not, they sort of ignored all the causes of the war. And I think kind of like uh, just didn't address why we're in the war in the first place uh, in trying to capitalize off of it to promote green energy. Uh, when really, I think the focus should have been on, you know, if you're at least in the West, like what is the Western role in provoking this war? So I think now, because maybe because of that, like they don't want to weigh in on this because they see it as just being a result of the war and they don't want to, uh, uh, discuss it or, so I I don't know, but, but you'd think this would concern environmentalists, like a a very large emission of methane gas. And, you know, we saw the pictures of bubbling up on the sea and we saw the Mm -hmm. the photograph of Anne Applebaum's husband, the Polish uh, member of the European parliament, former foreign minister of Poland saying, thank you, USA. So Mm -hmm. you think that, you know, people would be upset about that, but, I haven't seen it so far. And in terms of censorship, um, in terms of censorship, uh, look, uh, like to me, the most important case is Julian Assange, who is still uh, rotting in, in prison with no end in sight. And I just noticed Alexei Navalny, the Russian uh, anti-corruption activist, he, he's been writing op-eds from prison, uh, getting published in the Washington Post. And it occurred to me, he has more freedom right now. Uh, in prison than assange does we don't see uh, op-ed mm-hmm. by assange appearing in the washington post so what mm-hmm. does that say about our commitment right now to democracy and freedom that Alexei navalny uh, living under an authoritarian government has more privileges right now in prison than julian assange does um and uh that to me is really i mean that case as i talked about before it really will decide the future of the free press as we know it in the u.s and yeah look there's all sorts of Things going on where, you know, if you say the wrong thing on YouTube, you'll get demonetized or your, your channel taken off of the air. Those are the, all the things that people who speak and think independently have to worry about now. But to me, you know, the case against Julian is is the most worrisome.
12: Yes, agreed. I know that next weekend there is a, a rally in Washington D.C. and a worldwide actually movement on next Saturday for everyone to pay attention to and follow like uh, Richard Medhurst, you know, Misty Winston, some of the activists bringing education about Assange. I think that's a good um there'll be a, you know, tweet storms, but there'll also be people out um demanding that the case be dropped against Assange. And right. it's a reminder to everyone that he's Australian. He's not even American and yet he's being um, you know, you know, brought to the United States under the Espionage Act and threatened with 175 years in prison. Um, and he was a publisher and a journalist. He's not, you know, you know, he's people often mistakenly call him a whistleblower, but he's not, he's a publisher and a journalist. And he, and many of the things that he published were republished by some of the legacy media in the United States and England and other places in Europe. So it's, it's just, uh, It's fascinating, but a lot of it is getting lost because he is, like you said, so silenced. And your point about Navalny is a very good point. I couldn't figure that out either. He's in this very top security prison in Russia, and yet he's able to make the Washington Post. So that's interesting. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. All right, Tara. Um, Thanks so much for the call. Thank
12: you. Thank you. Take care.
0: Oh, by the way, you know, on the thing about, um, you know, the Washington Post and other outlets using... using uh you know disclosures from WikiLeaks for their own stories that reminds me of what happened last week with Snowden where Snowden got granted Russian citizenship and the Washington Post in their story on that they referred to Snowden and they said Snowden who considers himself a whistleblower right so all of a sudden in the in the Washington Post point of view Snowden's whistleblowing status is subjective it's his own perception not an actual fact which is unbelievable given that the Washington Post like Won Pulitzer prizes based on Snowden's uh, leaks, and Snowden's leaks also led to you know court orders calling the mass surveillance he exposed unconstitutional. And they still have the temerity now to say that his whistleblowing status is is subjective uh, of his own perception, not a concrete fact. It just it speaks to how loyal these um, these media outlets are to uh, even their own sources and to just the the facts and how. Immediately, they will sell people out if it's politically expedient enough for them. I just thought that was so telling. Okay, Amanda.
7: Oh, hi, Aaron. I hope you're doing well. Um, first thing is I, I've really enjoyed you on um, the unredacted call in the last couple of weeks, and I really appreciated the conversation regarding MAGA commun- communism, the serious with which you took the issue and the angle the two of you had on it, gave me renewed hope that, that YouTubers criticizing other YouTubers can actually be productive. So that's the first <laughs> thing. Um, the second thing, sorry, there's an airplane flying overhead. Um, on the Nord Stream, thing? I, I completely agree <laughs> with Tara. I'm glad she brought it up about having the, you know, where where's all the all the outrage over the methane spilling, and yep. and you know it, maybe it's not Russia, maybe it's not the United States, maybe it's some independent actor that wants to make the United wants to start World War III because they're religious extremists or maybe they're environmental terrorists. I mean, there's a lot of Possibilities other than having it be related necessarily directly to this Ukraine proxy war situation. Just, yeah. I, I'm just curious if if you had a thought about that.
0: Um, Amanda, sorry, I don't, I don't grasp your question. Can Can you say it again? Oh, I mean I lost you. Man, sorry. I didn't actually get what you wanted me to address. So I apologize. If you want to call back and say it again. There you go. I'll move you back in. Oh, yeah.
7: Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um so it so it could be that it's not the United States that did it. And if you look at the reactions and what other the, uh, the other US officials are saying, what if it's an independent actor? I mean it could be in theory an environmental terrorist who's like Screw this. i I don't
0: know, I don't know, I don't know because do to, you have a thought about that to, because, no, because to pull that off, you need such an advanced capability no I, I don't know I don't know much about like you know naval operations, but I think i I'm, I'm confident in saying that to pull off something like this, I mean that's a very, very first of all. That that pipeline is built with um, it's it's built to withstand uh, an anchor uh, crashing down on it. Um, it's built to withstand a lot of force, and so you need some really powerful explosives, and you need the capability to deliver them without being detected. Uh, and I just don't think anybody freestyling, operating on their own, could God could do that. You had to have a government's involvement. I think that's pretty clear.
7: Clearly I've just watched too many Hollywood movies. Thanks for your feedback.
0: (laughs) Okay.
3: Larry. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that um, really that uh, you know, this uh, pipeline attack is an attack on the working class of Europe and it's an you know really a, an attack on uh, germany and how the united states wants europe to be under its domination and really the uh, the task is for the working class in europe is to overthrow these bourgeois governments in europe i mean it's uh you know in england germany you're the working class has to mobilize independently to overthrow these governments that uh, are with uh, the United States in this war against Russia that uh, it benefits nobody. I mean, this is this is quickly escalating towards nuclear war that threatens everybody's lives, and uh, we can't trust anybody, the pseudo-left or any uh you know any anybody in capitalist politics the working class must take matters into their own hands and uh end this war because this war is escalating rapidly towards uh annihilation and uh you know it's we have to overthrow capitalism and establish working class power i mean this is this is a, a repeat of World War One. You know the the uh, lessons of World War One and World War Two are still here in the writings of Leon Trotsky are still relevant. You know, we okay, Larry, it. I'm gonna yeah, um, I'm gonna ask yeah. you just to wrap it up because I realized that we have a lot more callers and I want to get to everybody before we go. Oh, so. That's okay. Yes, yeah, but um, yeah, my point is is that this war needs to end as soon as possible and that the working class must overthrow these governments. That's the quickest way to end this war to save everybody's lives and everybody's future.
0: Got it. Well, I hope there's a quicker way than uh, government overthrow, because I think, I think that that will take a lot longer than finding an off ramp. But anyway, the point is we all agree this war needs to end. So thank you Leah, for the call. Okay. Okay. Where are we? All right. Who's next? Okay, obsolete, you are back. Go ahead. Okay, if not, we'll go to Fahim.
13: Hi, Fahim. Hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, uh, quick question, uh, or quick two questions uh, for you. How much do you think of uh, this uh, 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 whole thing with Russia and Ukraine has to do with nipping uh, bricks in the bud? And secondly, uh, with regards to uh, uh, Katie's uh, thing at the Hill, I'm not uh, sure of how the media companies work, but her stuff wasn't even aired and she got... Can so does it go uh, when you uh, uh, make a, uh, a skit? Does it go what all the way to the top and everybody has to uh, uh, agree to it, or how does that uh, work? And finally, I uh, would just a quick point to uh, Tara and what Amanda uh, mentioned. So the Nord Stream uh, one pipeline, the pressure in the uh, pipeline is about 1,400 psi so at 1400 psi you need like a schedule 80 or schedule 120 uh, pipe and you can look up the thickness of that uh, pipe so it just doesn't burst uh by uh, by itself and uh, with the emissions basically since it's a natural gas it's about depending on the gas it's about 40 to 45 percent lighter than air so it basically bubbles up and then just goes right into the atmosphere so but Uh, But but that's it on my end.
0: Okay. Thank you, Fahim. Um, So BRICS refers to the alliance of Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And the question is, you know, is this an act of sabotage against them? Uh, I mean, um, certainly I think the U.S. is hostile towards BRICS, doesn't want to see that alliance emerging. And it it was telling that, you know, there was all this talk of India and China, finally turning against uh, Russia when it comes to Ukraine. But what happened at the UN Security Council vote on Friday about Russia's annexation? Well, India and China abstained, um, which is not exactly a rebuke of, of Russia, I don't think. So, um, yeah, uh, that's in terms of, you know, the exact motivation of uh, of this pipeline attack. It You know, I, to me, it's about what I talked about before, which is the U.S. for a long time has been trying to undermine uh, Russia's economy and recognizing that its energy reserves are its strongest commodity. So, an attack like this uh, furthers furthers that goal. Okay, Fahim, thank you for the call. Thank you. Okay, Daniel.
14: Hey, Aaron, how you doing? Hi there Hey, yeah, just wondering about the uh, the annexations and what you think of them being done illegally.
0: Well, I agree that they're illegal. Um, and I think, um, look, I, there is a problem where, though, you've had these regions for the last eight years, you know, being under assault by the Ukrainian government. Um, there was a peace agreement reached in 2015 called Minsk II to resolve the issue. But I think, you know, my understanding of the history is that Ukraine refused to implement Minsk II. Uh, and Zelensky, even though he was elected on a platform to bring peace to those regions, Refused because he was threatened with violence by the far right inside Ukraine. He was even threatened with an outright coup, similar to what happened in 2014. And so you have the problem where you know what to do with people who don't want to live under a government that they feel doesn't respect their rights. Um, after 20 after the coup in 2014, the new Russian the, the new Ukrainian government took steps to basically uh, ban the Russian language or or make it more difficult for the Russian language to be spoken and taught in school. Um, there was massacres like Odessa in May of 2014, where dozens of uh, people who opposed the coup government were burned alive. And because of a war in the last eight years, a lot of people there who don't want to live anymore under the government, and they have, do have the right to self-determination. So what I do think though would have been the best way to do it is to have referendums internationally supervised. And that didn't happen here. Russia uh, did this very quickly. And uh, really in a matter of days, which I I just don't think is a uh, proper way to carry out a a vote of this importance.
14: Sure. And then, I mean, beyond that, uh, it's not just DPR and LPR. It's also Herson and Zaporizhia. So it's not just the regions that have been fought over for the past eight years. And they don't even control Zaporizhia, the city or even the majority of the population in Zaporizhia. So how exactly is that going to work? Yeah, well, presumably
0: Russia is going to now take it by force or try to take it by force.
14: Well, how's that going to work when they're getting completely destroyed, especially in the past 24 hours? in fact, Ukraine has already taken back lands that were previously declared as Russia, and yet Russia hasn't lifted a finger.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, So,
14: yeah so uh you know if putin's saying that they'll defend russia with all force available and this is russia but he's not doing anything
0: then who cares what putin says well look I, that's i mean you, you, that's one conclusion to draw and maybe you're right but you know i i don't think this war is i think it's, I, I think it's worse far from over and i think uh you know russia is mobilizing now and i think it hasn't shown the full force of its capability and so I would be careful about, um, you know, thinking that. Russia what is haven't on
14: they shown yet? That's like well, a look, literal we, meme at this point.
0: <laughs> well, look, don't take my word for it. If you there was an account recently in the New York Times, from uh, you know, based on interviews with U.S. officials, and I'll read it to you. It says this: "Quote: Some some American officials expressed concern that the most dangerous moments are yet to come." even as Putin has avoided escalating the war in ways that have at times baffled Western officials. He has made only limited attempts to destroy critical infrastructure or to target Ukrainian government buildings. And they go on to describe, you know, what else Putin hasn't done that they otherwise would have expected him to do. And so if American officials are baffled at how Putin hasn't escalated the wars in ways that they would have expected, then that means he still has the capability to do it. And I just think that's, um, they're also worrying, and that's accordingly, they say here, I, I'll quote it again, some American officials express concern that the most dangerous moments are yet to come. So if that's their point of view, then I, I personally find that very credible and something worth at least paying attention to.
14: I mean, I think we know why Putin hasn't done it yet. It's because he fully does believe that all of Ukraine should be Russia. And so there is a reason, and he is less hawkish than some of the people that are in his inner power circle, circle of power.
0: Well, I, I do agree he's less hawkish than others in his circle. I don't agree he wants to take all of, uh, all of Ukraine. He's I mean, he's speaking. already
14: gone beyond his stated,
0: his stated goals.
14: Harrison and Zaporizhia weren't part of his stated goals.
0: They weren't. No, they weren't. It's true. But they, he also uh, vowed to uh, denazify and to uh, destroy NATO. He didn't even
14: actions. mention denazifying Ukraine in his speech accepting the new regions. He didn't even mention it once.
0: Okay, but d- d- he still calls Ukraine an, a Nazi government. Um, look, And do you anyway, believe look, that? Do I think Ukraine's a Nazi government? No. Yes. I
13: do,
0: no. Like, no I that's don't insane, it. right? Well, I, I do think. I think you have to be careful here because I also don't want to downplay the significant role that Nazis play in the Ukrainian How government. How about the,
14: the significant role that Nazis play in Russia? Uh, I don't... I, Do you I, know I, about the RNU? Sorry? Do you know about the Russian National Unity Party?
0: Uh, I've heard of them, uh,
14: but... Okay, I, you I, should I, definitely read up on them. Okay. Actually, the first governor okay. in question. DPR was part of the RNU, which is a neo-Nazi group. And so,
9: yeah,
0: it's hilarious, right? Well, I can't take your word on that one. What I do know is that the Ukrainian military... I can give you sources if you want them. Okay, Yeah, please uh, put them in the chat. That'd be great. What I I do know for sure is that Ukraine has a neo-Nazi battalion incorporated into its armed forces called the Azov Battalion. And that's why Congress banned assistance to Azov back in 2018, which... We're now forgetting because recently Azov was welcomed to Congress with, with open arms like, on a visit. But So, so is NATO like, giving
14: you know, Nazis weapons or not? Then, you know, like you can't use that as a point to prove that they exist, but then be like, well, NATO's just giving all these weapons to Nazis. But well, they, they, they are. said That they're well, not they, they, doing that.
0: I, I absolutely think that U.S. weapons are falling to the hands of, of Azov. That's, and in fact, there's there have been U.S. trainers who train with Azov, but even though it's banned by Congress. That, that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Um, similar to Syria. I mean, officially... U.S. weapons weren't supposed to go to al-Qaeda. There was no official policy saying, let's arm al-Qaeda, but that's exactly what happened. That's what happens during war, and that's why I'm opposed to it. Uh, but, Daniel, put your source in for that claim about the Nazi in, the, in, the, um, in, in Donetsk, and I'll look at it. So thank, and thanks for the call.
14: Yeah, I would really quick, just I would also say, have you watched the Vice 10-minute uh, feature on the, the neo-Nazi organizations in Russia? It came out in August. I have not, no. Okay, I'll sit, I'll put that in there for you too. Okay, thanks. Thank you.
0: Okay, Anthony. Hello. Hi.
15: So, yeah. Well, funny enough, I uh, was about to ask you about you know what you call him, Azov or whomever, that were welcome to the Capitol the other day, and. uh, I um was watching, funny enough, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene at a Trump thing the other day, yesterday, and I wasn't, I'm not a fan, but she was like, well, I don't think they're registered foreign lobbyists, and I was like, that's pretty interesting, yeah, I, they probably weren't, but uh, they passed a bunch more money for Ukraine in the omnibus, whatever, continuing resolution fake budget that they pass, and... I don't know the total. I'm not sure what the total is now, but I hear people estimating 60, 70, 80 range since the start of this. But I think we're well and above that billion. I think we're past 100.
0: I think it's officially, I think it's 66 billion because so 54 billion already approved by Congress. And then just on Friday or whatever, Thursday, this week, another 12 billion. So I think the official number is over 66. And yeah, I'm sure there are ways in which it's actually far higher.
15: Crazy. Well, I I'll, one last thing. I uh, just turned in my uh, absentee ballot for November yeah, the other day, and I shouldn't even because I don't believe in voting. But I uh, voted for a third party where there was, and then I wrote in Putin and Kim Jong-un for where there weren't third parties.
2: But all okay.
0: Right. All right. Well, yeah. thanks for sharing, thing. Yeah. Uh Heidi. Hi. Yeah,
10: uh, I almost... Um, what i wasn 't going to call in and, and Daniel actually brought up what I was going to say uh opposite side of of uh how I feel about it. I wanted to know if you had um heard putin 's speech, and I guess my the point I was going to make was that he did bring up that uh the u s was has been the only one to use nukes uh since they were invented and um that kind of gives me a, a I, a little bit of a doomed, you know, kind of feeling because I, I've heard talk that, uh, you know, they, they might be put to quote-unquote tactical use on the battlefield and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And this is what I have been fearing ever since the beginning of this mess. And, you know, like, I, I shouldn't have to be worrying about this. Absolutely. I thought we found out a long time ago that nuclear war was not where uh, the human species wanted to go. That's Absolutely. I
0: I totally agree. And, and Putin referred to the U.S. use of nuclear weapons and he called it a precedent, which yep. suggests he's, you know, open to using it himself and following that precedent, you know, which is, is very scary. Um, yeah, I, I heard that speech and that was a very scary thing to hear him say. And um, he's trying to cast himself as sort of like the, you know, as on the side of the oppressed around the world. He talked about the U.S. being up a colonial power and you know i think he was trying to appeal to people in the global south but whether they find that convincing or not i don't know especially when he's you know invoking the threat of nuclear weapons that's not going to appeal to too many people
2: yeah thank you
10: i was i was just going to say uh,
0: sorry i have to i have to rush through calls because we're near the end so bernard go ahead
6: yeah hi aaron um I'm, my name is bernard calling from australia um just to, on this week's all in podcast um, David Sachs actually said something which was um, probably the loudest. The loudest um, thing I've heard is he just kept on saying, "We have never seen such a cavalier approach to a nuclear response. Mm. We have never seen a, such a cavalier approach to like you know, like the risk and the that what that just entails." And you've got to start to say, like you know, regardless of people's politics. At what point in time are people in the ears of this security state in the U.S. saying, where's the off-ramps? Because it just takes one of these things. And I would have thought the threat of one of these things would have actually had, you know, people like shitting themselves. But clearly not. I mean, um, it's just quite, it's like, you know, so what does it take? What do you think? I mean, what do you think it takes?
0: (sighs) It's a great question. Um, to me, the, there's been so much propaganda and just fear mongering about Russia for the last six years. I mean, again, con- like, just consider the power that Russia was given in the American mind, the power of Russian bots to like brainwash Americans. It, it's created this sort of like cartoonish figure of, of Russia that I think has made a, a climate of diplomacy just really, really difficult. And um, I think so there are propaganda barriers. There, there, there are now ideological barriers to people considering Russia in a sober way, and that involves thinking about off-ramps. And um, so I don't know what will, it will take for people in the Biden administration to wake up. You know, someone like Tony Blinken, can it even occur to him of uh, the dangers that he's fueling? You know, when he's when he can't even hide the fact that he sees an a, a attack on a major pipeline as a huge opportunity, he can't contain that. What does that say about him in terms of how he looks at the world? It's strictly from the point of view of like a very narrow, narrowly defined uh, view of what, what U.S. interests are, you know. And I think that means he's not going to be open to considering the threats that he's, he's feeling. So you raise a great question. I wish I knew the answer. Um, and again, as many people have said in this call, and I've said we shouldn't be in this position, right? There's no reason why we should even be in this position where this is like a, a serious danger to consider, but yet it is.
6: Well, all I can say is I hope Saina like you know, whether it takes a, you know, um, you know, GOP donors in the years of the GOP and DNC donors in the years of the DNC, something has to happen, you know, like something has to happen because like the, the off ramps are becoming, especially after that, the pipeline issue uh, this week, like the pipelines becoming limited.
0: Yes. And and, and that's such a critical point to stress because the pipeline destruction is not just horrible news for people who rely on, you know, uh, the Russian energy supply in Europe, you know, and all the jobs that will be lost and people who will go cold. You know, it's also, as you say, it removes an off ramp because having that pipeline there, having the the potential that it could be operational again uh, with just as Putin said a few weeks ago, he said all that has to happen is they just push a button. And all their gas problems will be solved. That's what he said. So but now that option is removed, which then makes uh, the incentive for Germany to push for peace uh, that much less because they don't get anything from it if they push for peace um, because they don't have any energy to, to get on the other side of that. So it, 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 you know, that is just a hugely dangerous aspect of this that I think is a, a really good thing to highlight. OK, so thank well, thanks, you, mate. It's there, it's scary it's times. Scary times indeed. Okay, Maria. Can you hear me? Yes.
5: I just wanted to say really quickly to you and Matt Taibbi, Max Blumenthal, and some of our other last bastions of places to go to to have real conversations about Real world, real time events, and I'm I'm so grateful to all of you. But I guess I guess my primary question is, when people that are used to being stable uh, in European countries, they could get by. They weren't wealthy, but they could get by and not have to worry. What, what would it look like when they're all of a sudden impoverished and can't stay warm? What does that look like in your mind? And what, what could their recourse possibly look like?
0: What Europeans could do this winter if they're going cold and their energy bills are skyrocketing. Like, What is their recourse?
5: Well, it's already happening in the U.S. as well. I...
0: Yeah, I mean, look, there's been big protests in, in Germany recently, and I, I expect we'll see more of that. Um, you know, some people are predicting, you know, complete social chaos, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't see a point in making a prediction like that, but it's certainly a possibility. I mean, uh, when you force, when you just, you know, Germany is 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 destroying its own economy, and there are you know, powerful people inside Germany who are not happy about this, seeing their industries collapse and factories being forced to close. And Germany just unveiled a new spending package to try to deal with this, but it's not going to be enough. And in fact, it's drawing resentment from other EU countries who say it's too generous and will put them in a bad position because they won't be able to match that for their own populations. And so, um, look, I mean, the, the alternative, the, 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 the way out is to say, uh, is to stop being a, tool of the U.S., you know, is to stop giving the U.S. such an outsized role in Europe's security and energy policy. And that,
5: that's well, exactly yeah. what I was getting at. I mean, how how far does it have to go for them to learn to stop being beholden to U.S. interests that are counter to their own?
0: That's how a great much does it take? Yeah. yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. Thank you, Maria, for the call.
5: Thank you.
2: Okay, Tim. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're the subject of tonight's stream thing. And I'm uh, I'm wondering, do you follow John Helmer at all? Um, the journalist writes the Dances with Wolves, uh, sorry, with Bears um, uh, blog. Do you know him?
0: I, I've heard of John Helmer. I'm not, to be honest with you, and again, I, I apologize if I'm wrong, but I'm not convinced it's actually a real person. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that's just like Russian intelligence, because (laughs) just based on what (laughs) really? Yeah, yeah. I mean they're they 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 publish a lot of stuff that obviously to me comes from Russian intelligence and um, certainly mirrors their 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 line. And um, now I could be completely wrong. I could be totally wrong, and I I apologize to John Helmer if that's actually a. Real person, but what I'm saying is, I, I just from my you know experience with that site before, it, it strikes me is they're very close to the Russian government, and um, yeah. But anyway, so they have I mean, they weighed I, in on the
2: I, have they weighed in on the Nord Stream two explosion? I'm sure they have. Well, I mean, you know, that's kind of fascinating because I, I think he actually he he's had positions in Canadian liberal politics before. When oh really he, okay he has a long history as a, as a journalist and uh, you know he was a, at a time working for the liberal party in canada back in the 70s i, I, I don't know anyway um <clears throat> the um it, okay, his my point bad. Was, yeah, sorry listen listen i should correct
0: myself cuz i don't okay right he is a real person and i apologize for suggesting otherwise um I just looked him up. And uh but what I do think though, is just based on seeing some of the stuff on his site that he's definitely close to the Russian government. I think that's that's what I should say about him.
2: Okay. Anyway, his his um he made a, a good argument to say uh that he thought that the polls were the most likely um you know, culprits in this. Um and there's other things that have happened since that you know, the fact that the explosions happened the day before the polls Opened a new pipeline from I think it was Norway. Um, you know, is is kind of interesting. But the uh, you know what I would say is um, the the what that actually introduces in a as an idea is I think we're we're seeing Europe sliced up like a salami here in the sense that you know who's how do you how do you keep the germans away from the russians well once you run out of ukrainians the next ones are the poles and you know there's there's been a whole generation of polish politicians who have been pushing this whole intermarium idea which is basically the idea that you know the poles have a a very specific role to play in european anti-russian politics and it's basically to you know become this bulwark between germany and russia and I, i'm just putting that forward as an idea interesting okay uh thank you tim thank you okay can I, can I say one last
13: question?
0: sorry tim i i have to keep moving because i want to get to everybody obsolete uh yeah, you're back earlier, there you off. go it's, it's working off. okay go ahead a tweet because
9: i was wondering terror reminded me of this like how much methane is spewing out of this pipeline now and i i look I, some, someone posted a link to a tweet in the chat I found it here. It's uh, by Greg Karlstrom. It's a Bloomberg article. Something He quotes it, Germany estimated that about 300,000 metric tons of methane entered the atmosphere as a result of the releases, roughly the same climate impact over a 20-year period as the annual emissions from about 5.48 million U.S. cars. So,
0: bad, right? Yeah, that's not good. That is not good. That's not good. All right, thank you. Okay, here we come. Yep, (laughs) Katie. And Katie, if you're there, there's a mute button in the, should be the bottom left of your screen. Okay, if not, we'll go to Andrew. Andrew, are you there? There is a mute button to press. And the, um, All right, everybody. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. I really appreciate everyone tuning in and sharing your comments and questions. I'll be back on here tomorrow with Katie Halper at 11 a.m. Eastern time after we do Monday morning on Useful Idiots uh, YouTube. And have a great rest of your day.